Hello folks and welcome back to What Happened. This is True Crime Chronicles and um, this is episode 22. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. This episode is about the kidnapping of Amanda Berry, Gina DeJesus, and Michelle Knight, which occurred in Cleveland, Ohio, back in, well, the kidnappings occurred one year, two, three years, but when the girls were found, it was 2013. So stay with me now and let's delve into this case. So on May the 6th, 2013, the news broke that three young women who had been kidnapped and held inside a home in Cleveland, Ohio, for years and years had escaped and were now free. One of them had actually physically broken out of the house while their abductor was temporarily away from the house. This was crazy. Um, With assistance from a neighbor, after calling out for help, 26-year-old Amanda Berry, who had been missing for 10 years, physically broke her way out of the front door of the property at 2207 Seymour Avenue in Cleveland, Ohio. The case was shocking, and as more details emerged, I knew this would be a huge case. It had so many twists and turns. Dark secrets, horrible criminal acts, and a true crime case that trumps any fictional kidnapping stories I've ever come across. The only kidnapping case it really reminds me of, even though there have been a lot of high-profile ones like Elizabeth Smart comes to mind right away, um, but the only one that it really reminds me of in the way that these people were sexually abused inside someone's home for so long is the case of Colleen Stan. Uh, it was She was considered the girl in the box. She was kidnapped in 1977 by married couple Cameron and Janice Hooker and held in a box under their bed to be used as a sex slave for over seven years before she also finally escaped. That is another atrocious crime that is hard to even wrap your brain around. That case we will examine in a future episode. For today, the kidnapping of Michelle Knight, Amanda Berry, and Gina Georgina de Jesus is our focus for this episode. So first I'm going to outline the day that the world found out that three women had been held captive for so long in Cleveland. I'm going to bring you back to May the 6th, 2013 in the city of Cleveland and on 2207 Seymour Avenue, all is quiet and no different than any other early May day. There are neighbors out on their lawns, barbecuing, enjoying each other's company, socializing. But this day would shape up to be much different than any of Seymour Avenue's residents would have anticipated. At approximately 5.50 p.m., neighbors Charles Ramsey, Angel Cordero, and Aurora Marty, who all lived on the street, heard a commotion coming from number 2207. This was a house owned by Ariel Castro, a well-known fixture in the neighborhood, a man who drove the local school bus every day. He was also involved in the community's salsa scene. He played bass in a popular local group and was known and liked by most people. However, this man had a past and a dark secret. His past included a lot of violence against women, in particular, and a strong foreboding of the events to come. 
His ex-wife, with whom he had three children, accused him of being extremely violent during their marriage. The dark secret was that he had three young women, little more than girls really, chained up in his home. When Aurora and her other neighbors heard the ruckus up the street that day, they looked up the street and saw what Charles Ramsey later described was a girl trying like hell to get out of a house where she evidently couldn't get out of the front door. Going nuts on the door were his exact words. He explained later that he heard her yelling for help and saw her waving one arm outside the door. It appeared that the door would not open. He also said that he thought it was a domestic situation at the time. He decided to get closer, and that was a decision which altered the course of the day and many, many people's lives. As he got closer, he could see that the door was bolted shut and there were boards nailed over it to keep it from opening from the inside. Charles and Amanda both pulled at the boards until she could get out, and she did. She came out shockingly holding a small child in her arms and screaming to the neighbors that her name was Amanda Berry and that she had been kidnapped and held for the last 10 years. She was extremely upset and panicky, very agitated, and loudly exclaiming to everyone who she was. Um, a neighbor called 911 and gave the phone to Amanda Berry. Her 911 call is really emotional. It is heart-wrenching. You can hear the panic, relief, and fear in her voice. Here is that 911 call. There's a lot to unpack there in that 911 call. Um, obviously, there's Amanda's reaction, which you can only imagine how she's feeling after breaking out of the house that she's been um, prisoner in for the last 10 years. But there's also the 911 operator and her response to this situation. You know, that 911 operator came under fire in the days following the escape for her kind of cold-sounding response to Amanda's plight. At the end, she even hangs up, <clears throat> excuse me, hangs up on Amanda at the end of the call. And this is really unusual for 911, as they are trained to stay on the line and question the person on the phone to get as much information as possible and stay with them until police arrive for a number of reasons, one of which is to keep the person calm 
Um, anyway, this dispatcher does none of those things. So we're going to leave that situation for now. We're going to go back to the actual situation of a man on the side of the road. When the police get there, thankfully ahead of Ariel Castro, they enter the house. No one else has left the house since Amanda and, and a small child came out. When the police enter the house, they find two other women in the house. One peeks around a corner at the officers. And when she sees that it is indeed a police officer, and this person is Michelle Knight, one of the officers described seeing Michelle for the first time and said that she threw herself into his arms, crying. Incredibly, the three women found inside the house on Seymour Avenue had all been missing for at least a decade. Even more coincidentally, had all been abducted from the same street in Cleveland. Later, it would come out that Ariel used his teenage daughter's name as bait to get at least two of the girls into his car, and then ultimately his house of horrors, as all of the girls knew his daughter and knew Ariel as their friend's father. Imagine using your own daughter to lure in these young, innocent children. But it worked. We will get to, yet to the abductions of each girl in a few moments, but you know, as parents, we teach our children not to get in a vehicle with a stranger, not to talk to a stranger, not to accept things from a stranger. But what about when this person is not a stranger? What about when this person is the father of your friend or a classmate's father or your own parent's friend? What do we teach our children about that? So the Cleveland police are about to now have a day that they did not expect when they went to work that morning. After ascertaining that Ariel was not in the house and what kind of situation they kinda had on their hands now, an arrest warrant and a bolo a be on the lookout was issued for Ariel Castro. He was spotted at a local McDonald's parking lot and taken into custody without further incident. As police searched the house, it is becoming clear what kind of circumstances the three girls were held in inside of that house. And I say girls, because even though they were all women when they were rescued, two of the victims, Amanda and Gina, were only teenagers. Amanda was only 16 years old. She was actually taken the day before her 17th birthday, and Gina de Jesus was only 14 years old. A child. Michelle wasn't much older at only 21. The girls were held in squalid conditions inside that house. Dirt and filth were everywhere, with nearly no food and filthy mattresses found in a few of the rooms. The police also found large heavy chains that were secured to the beds and other structures in the house. Imagine being the first people who got a look inside that house that day. The scene was quickly secured and taped off. With the girls safe at the hospital, including a small female child that emerged with Amanda Berry, they began to tell their respective stories. Their incredible, horrible, heartbreaking stories. Let's begin with the timeline of events in the abductions. The case starts with Michelle Knight, a 21-year-old woman who, before encountering Ariel Castro, had a very, very difficult life long before he came along. She had spent years of her childhood being neglected and abused in a poverty-stricken home at the hands of her family 
Um, she was raped in high school, which resulted in a pregnancy. As a young girl, Michelle decided that being homeless was better than how she had it at her home, and she decided to run away. For a while, she says that first night she slept underneath a park bench. Um, in the following few days, she stole blankets off people's clotheslines and managed to keep herself warm in the nights by wrapping up in blankets and sleeping under port or underneath benches. But it is this chain of events when Michelle decides to run away that kind of led to her abduction. Um, certainly not blaming her, but it's the chain of events that led up to that. After leaving her young son with the only babysitter she had, her mother and stepfather one day, in an attempt to better her life, her stepfather wound up physically abusing Michelle's young son when she was not there, and he dislocated his leg. It was reported to the authorities, and Michelle ended up losing custody of him to Child Protective Services. Over the following months, Michelle did everything she could to regain custody of him and was attending regular mandatory meetings with the child protection people and having regular court hearings. On August the 22nd, 2002, she was scheduled for such a hearing. Michelle had successfully made it to the neighborhood where the courthouse was, but was having trouble locating the building. It was not a neighborhood she was very familiar with. It was getting later and later, and she was afraid she would miss the very important custody hearing for her son, and out of desperation, she walked into a Dollar Tree store and asked for directions. Unfortunately for, for Michelle, she never made it to her next court appearance, and she never saw her son for at least the next decade. Her families and the authorities didn't try hard to find her, and the police assumed that she had taken off. What a terrible situation for someone who's now in the hands of somebody like Ariel Castro. Michelle had not taken off, and she had not left her young son. She had met Ariel Castro inside that store, who overheard her asking for directions and offered to bring her right there. Michelle knew not to accept rides from strangers, but this was someone she recognized as the father of a schoolmate. And being in this time constraint and being late for court, she made a decision, one that would change her entire life. And she accepted a ride with Ariel Castro, and she got into his car. Once Ariel got Michelle to his house at 2207 Seymour Avenue, and he got her to the house by asking if she'd like to see a few puppies that the family just had, and saying that it would literally only take an extra minute or two and he'd get her right to the courthouse. She reluctantly agreed. Once he pulled up in the driveway, they both got out of the car and went inside the house. Once inside, Michelle says that Ariel then told her that she was not going to the courthouse and that she would never see her young son again. Ariel then ripped up the only little picture of her son that Michelle had right in front of her. And then he tied up Michelle with electrical wires and electrical... Um, extension cords and um, masturbated in front of her. He then brought Michelle down to his basement and chained her up to a pipe in the basement, put a sock in her mouth and placed a motorcycle helmet over her head. She was assaulted that day and many times over the next few days. This is where she would spend the next few days 
of her stay in that house. Eventually, she was moved upstairs. He often left a radio on in the house, turned up very loud to cover his activities and to stop anyone from possibly hearing Michelle. Neighbors later said that they all can recount uh, Ariel's always playing the radio loud at his house. Of course, I guess they didn't know why. Michelle's life became a terrible routine of rape, physical, emotional abu- physical and emotional abuse, meager food rations, or none at all. That's the way life went on in the house on Seymour until April 2003. So, about a year later, on April 21, 2003, 16-year-old Amanda Berry was on her way home from her job at the local Burger King. It was the day before her 17th birthday, and she was approached by a Hispanic man driving a car. It was a man she knew. It was the father of a friend of hers. When he offered her a ride, she hesitated only for a moment. After all, this was her friend's father. He just wanted to help, right? As he drove, he told her that his daughter was at home and would Amanda like to stop by for a second just to see her. Amanda said yes, she would like to. She hadn't seen this friend for a while and was looking forward to it. That's how Ariel got Amanda Berry into his house. Just as easy as that. Upon entering the house, Amanda was treated similarly to Michelle. She was given the basement treatment, brought down to the basement, secured to a pipe and with a motorcycle helmet pushed down over her head and left there for days. She was eventually also brought upstairs, but the two girls were not permitted to meet or even speak, although they did know about each other over time. Another thing Ariel would do to cause more stress in the girls' lives is he would play them off against each other. He would make comments that the other girl had said something bad about the other one. And with this strategy, he hoped that he could control them both and that they would go from friends so that they would never form an alliance and become friendly with each other. He would tell Michelle how unwanted she was. And he had a favorite. It was Amanda. And he made it very clear that this was the case. From telling Michelle that she was unwanted because people were not looking for her as they were looking for Amanda. Can you imagine that during the days that Ariel had both Amanda and Michelle locked up in his house, he was telling Michelle how unloved and unwanted she was and how bad she was because nobody was looking for her like Amanda's family were, you know, in the media all the time looking for her. So not only did Michelle go through the abuse and the neglect She was also being emotionally abused on a regular basis by Ariel Castro. All of the girls were. Amanda kept journals during her captivity, and on the sheets of these journals, besides her daily activities, she wrote how many times a day she had been raped by Ariel. She did this in an attempt to have proof if they were ever found. Some of the sheets have three times written at the top, some have four times. One entry has five times written at the top in Amanda's effort to keep track of the crimes being committed against her. The police found the journals in the house and collected them as evidence. The psychological abuse Ariel heaped on these young girls was just another way he controlled them. They ate when he allowed them to. They didn't when he didn't. 
They often went days, sometimes weeks, with no food or very little food. They bathed when he allowed them to, or they didn't. They slept when he said. And they performed whatever sick, depraved act he wanted them to, when he said. During the course of her incarceration, Michelle was impregnated at least five different times due to the rapes. Each time, she was starved and beaten by Ariel until she miscarried the fetuses. Michelle recounts a time when he literally entered her room and jumped up and down on her stomach to ensure she did not successfully carry his child. It worked. She never did carry one child to term. He continually called her ugly, stupid, and unloved. Although he abducted, abused, and raped all of his hostages, he favored Amanda and made that clear all the time. Michelle recounts later how there were times when she contemplated suicide in her captivity. It is evident in the actions that he took that Amanda was his favorite when eventually his actions resulted in Amanda becoming pregnant. We will talk about that in just a few moments. We're now up to April the 2nd, 2004, so nearly a year later again, almost exactly, on the same street in Cleveland where he had now abducted two other girls. He sees 14-year-old Georgina de Jesus, known by her family and friends as Gina. Gina's family actually knew Ariel. Her father and mother both knew him personally, and shockingly, when she went missing, Ariel actually inserted himself into the search and investigation, making a point of helping to look for her and speaking with her parents, attempting to give them comfort. Little did they know that this man was the one who actually had their daughter chained up in his house, only about three miles away in the same community. Wow, right? So Georgina accepted a ride, the same as the others, as her family knew Ariel and she knew his daughter. When Gina was in his car, he used the same ruse he had used with Amanda and asked her if she wouldn't like to see his daughter for a moment. Gina agreed, and she was also led to the house on Seymour Avenue. When she was inside that house, her fate was sealed for the next decade, and she does not see her family again for a long, long time. After hearing other female voices and using her common sense, Gina became suspicious that Ariel might be the same person who had abducted the missing teenager, Amanda Berry, and she eventually asked him if he did. He admitted it, bragging to her that he had and that she was in the house as well. In the beginning, he gave Gina little presents of clothes or extra food. She became his new favorite for a while. And he did the same thing as he did with the other two girls by attempting to play them off against each other. He made the others jealous by giving extra privileges to one but not the others. And this behavior did lead to distrust between the girls. They said that they felt they had no one. And can you really blame them? This psychological game Ariel was playing with them? It certainly furthered his control, right? No one will ever know what kind of ordeals those girls went through, and they will never be the same. A few years into her captivity, after Amanda was pregnant for nine months, she went into labor. Ariel decided that Michelle would birth the baby, and she was given an ultimatum. 
Michelle was told by Ariel to deliver a healthy living baby for Amanda or she would be killed. Michelle did what she had to do to survive, so after having her own babies all taken away from her or killed by Ariel Castro, she delivered Amanda Berry's baby girl in a plastic baby pool in that house. Yes, Amanda gave birth in a little plastic wading baby pool that Ariel had put her in and turned the radio up really loud to cover any screams or cries. And that's how Amanda delivered her, her, her first child. Incredibly, the baby was healthy. This child would, be kept, would become Ariel's undoing as he grew to love that child and he frequently doted on her. She was even allowed out of the house sometimes and on occasion Ariel would take her places like the park. Neighbors also saw this child and he told neighbors that she was his daughter. The baby grew into a child, a girl that Amanda named Jocelyn. Can you imagine how that child was being raised? in that house with those women being kept there like that? Amanda has stated that Ariel kept her chained up a lot less after her daughter was old enough to see the chains and start questioning Ariel. Ultimately, this led to the escape of the girls. During their incarceration, Castro would continually test these girls. Once he started leaving them unchained, he had them perform household chores and other menial activities. Sometimes, as a test, he would pretend to leave the house and leave a door open or unlocked. Each time he did this, one of the girls would attempt to escape or peek her head around the corner to see if she could get out. And Ariel, waiting for this, hiding like some kind of panther, would be right there to punish, beat, and otherwise harm them if they did try, which they did. Unfortunately, to no avail over the decade they were held captive. There are reports that during the time when uh, Amanda was first taken into Ariel's home, he even used Amanda Berry's own cell phone to call and taunt her family after her abduction, saying that he was with Amanda and she was never coming home. Amanda's mother would never see her daughter again. Her mother passed away in 2006. Her family says she died of a broken heart after not having seen or been with Amanda for the past few years. The house in which they were kept, the three women, had windows which were all boarded up. The house on Seymour, that's the case. The bolts were all sheared off so that the girls couldn't unscrew the screws to get out. And everywhere in the house that he had um, like walled off or, or chained off, this was the case. There was no way of unscrewing a screw or something like that. And so it was that life went on this way until May the 6th, 2013, when Amanda's daughter told her that her daddy was gone to grandma's house. And Amanda saw something she had never seen before. And a spark of hope appeared in her mind. Just a spark. Ariel was gone, but the inside front door, which was always kept closed and locked, was left unlocked. Was this a trick? Another test? What should she do? I mean, what would you do? Without much thought, she did the only thing that she could do. She opened that door. 
and got our first glimpse to the outside world in over a decade. There was still a door, an outside door, barring her escape. The outside screen door, which was locked and secured on the outside. But she was not about to let this small problem stop her today. Today she was getting out. Today was the day. After the girls got out, little by little, the story came out of who this small girl was who Amanda was carrying when she got out of the house. It was little Jocelyn, who was now six years old. The baby she had in that house, in that pool, that Michelle had been forced to deliver. And the story doesn't end there. After the girls got out and the police showed up, uh, when they finally apprehended Ariel, he was apprehended and arrested in a local McDonald's parking lot by the police. Initially, he was charged with four counts of kidnapping, and that would include a little Jocelyn, and three counts of rape. He was held without bond in corrections. Ultimately, without it having to go to trial, Castro pleaded guilty to 937 charges, including aggravated murder, kidnap, rape, and assault, and on August 1st was given a life sentence plus a thousand years. The aggravated murders were due to the, abor- the, the abortions that he performed on Michelle. On September the 3rd, 2013, so just a few months later, and this is where the, this case takes a bit of a twist, Ariel Castro was found dead in his cell at the Correctional Reception Center in Orient, south of Columbus. The county coroner ruled the death a suicide and said that Castro had used a bedsheet to hang himself. No suicide note was found. He had taken the cowardly way out and committed suicide. The girls would never have their justice, not really. He'd never serve any hard time like he forced them to serve. But because he did plead guilty, the girls never had to testify and got up in court in front of Ariel, point to Ariel, tell the whole world the most distressing, traumatic events of their whole captivity while he would sit there watching them. In another twist, I read somewhere that after Ariel died, or maybe before he died, he told people or left instructions that he wanted the three girls that he kidnapped to have any assets or money that was left over when he died. Just a little side note there, (laughs) as if the case couldn't get any freaking weirder. Today, Amanda Berry is 37 years old, and she has used her experiences to become a spokesperson for missing and exploited people, and she does a daily news segment about it. She's used her experiences to change her own life for the better. Gina DeJesus is now 33 years old. She has joined the group Northeast Ohio Amber Alert Community, and she works with group victims and families. So just like Amanda, the two of them went on to to work with other families of missing, missing and exploited people, both adults and children. Michelle Knight is now 42 years old. She has changed her name to Lily Rose. She has gotten married and is trying hard to forget the terrible memories of the time she spent in Ariel Castro's house on Seymour Avenue. She has written a couple of books about her experience and she speaks publicly about it 
on occasion. In the case of the kidnapping of Amanda Berry, Gina DeJesus, and Michelle Knight, that's what happened. Join me next time for the next episode of What Happened. And until next crime, this is True Crime Chronicles. Thank <laughs> you.